Good afternoon and welcome to the Sitka Nature Show. This is your host, Matt. I want to thank you for joining me here in the last weekend of August 2023. We are less than a month away from the fall equinox, so winding down the light side of the year. There's something about mid-August that each year it seems like there's one day where I get a little surprised at how dark it is and it's like only 9 o'clock or 8.30 in the evening. So something about this time of year where the uh, decrease in daylight is especially fast approaching the fall equinox and um, that happened again this year, but it has been some sunny weather mixed in with some rain. We're actually above average for the month of ra- uh, for rain this year, helped greatly by the over four inches of rain we had a couple of weeks ago. But I've been enjoying the sunshine and dry weather, had a chance to get out up in the mountains uh, with my son, and we saw a Says Phoebe, which might be the second or third report of one of those for Sitka. They're more common further north. They actually nest in the interior, but it was fun to find one of those unexpectedly on a mountain ridge while we were hiking along there. If you're getting out and seeing things, especially in this season of fall migration where it's not too unusual to find unusual birds, I'd love to hear about it. Please feel free to send me an email, sitkanature at gmail.com, or get on Facebook and like the Sitka Nature page there. This week I have with me in the studio, as I'm recording this on Saturday, I have with me Kitty Labounty. Hello. Hello. It seemed like the time of year, looking at some of my past shows, I was like, oh, this is the time of year, the mid to late <laughs> August, when Kitty Labounty <laughs> joins the conversation, often to talk about fungi and upcoming natural history seminar series and all your summer adventures and travels and those sorts of things. And I think we'll probably talk about all of that and more in the coming little bit here. But yeah, maybe we'll just start with the with the fungi. In the past, you've done workshops, I think, mm-hmm. not one last year, and I can't remember if you did one the year before. I did do one the year before, I think. <laughs> the years start squishing yes. together in this kind of strange way, but I'm pretty sure I did do one the year before. You know, we worked it all out. Um, you know, parts of it were on Zoom and parts of it were, you know, out in the woods, so that, that worked out fine. Um, didn't do one... 2020. Yeah, 2020. I'm like going yeah. back in time. Which, yeah, I guess. Um. So 2021, <laughs> last year, 2022. In any case, 2023, here we are. Yay. And it sounds like not yet decided whether one will happen this year, kind of looking at dates and seeing how things work out. Sometimes it's hard to work out the schedule. It's not for lack of interest on my part. It's just like, oh, wait, the semester's starting on Monday and I've got all this stuff to do and ah, so that kind of thing. If folks are interested, you'll be posting presumably a little note in the paper about it. And on yes. Facebook, I noticed in the past, you've posted in Sitka Chatters and places. And then you can also always just call the university because you do it through the university. Yes, exactly. So that's probably the best way to find out. And hopefully I'll get I'll get it worked out <laughs> so that yeah. there's a date. Um, it won't be this this next weekend, obviously. Um, who knows? It could be the weekend after. That would be the best weekend, um, I, I think, 
optimally. Um, sometimes I've had it in August, which actually uh, works out pretty well. This year, I don't know if it would have been that great um, because it, it's it's pretty dry. There are certain things that are out that we would, it's not like we wouldn't see anything. Um, but there's this just funny sort of timing. It's like it's 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 got to be just right, <laughs> yeah, just dry enough, just wet enough. You know, it's it's the Goldilocks syndrome. Um, there's certainly fungi out there, but I've seen more at different times. So who knows? I think it'll be a good year, though. It is interesting, unlike plants, which seem to be pretty regular year after year, we do have some variability in how much fruit sets, depending on whether pollinators were able to be successful, or I guess in the case of the wind, I suppose if it's really rainy, they might be less able to pollinate. But generally, there's a plant there, it'll show up pretty much every Mm -hmm. year and at least bloom and fungi it's some species are very consistent and you can always count on them and others it's kind of like you see once and yeah every few years maybe there's definitely a handful that we see every year i mean general wise the reshulas um and then also the lactaria so um the brittle gills and the milky caps um most years they're abundant. And courtenarius. And courtenarius, of course. Those are abundant. Um, winter chanterelles are generally pretty abundant. There certainly are golden chanterelles already out. There's lots of little cute winter chanterelles. Um, hedgehogs are out right now. Um, I've seen some chicken in the woods. Um, what else have I seen? Um, actually, one thing I haven't seen, and I have some friends who have been hunting rather extensively, they haven't seen any bull leaves yeah. to speak of. And usually you see them by now. Um, so I'm a little bit surprised. It could be they're, they'll just show up later, or it could be that, you know, I'm not looking at the right place, and neither are my friends, and other people are seeing them, and they're being very quiet about it, as they should. <laughs> just Getting there a day late and a dollar short, as they say. Yes, but uh, I haven't seen any rotten ones either, which is yeah. another thing. You know, it's like I, I definitely miss them, you know, because bullets are tasty, not just to humans. They're tasty also to all sorts of lovely little invertebrates. Um, so, but I haven't seen any of those either. So it could be just like, you know, they're they're biding their time. Yeah, I haven't seen any king bolides either. I, I guess I haven't even seen anything in that family. I haven't noticed any swillis or Josephus. We, we saw the one dark one. Right. I have seen the dusky bolide. That's the true. dusky bolide. And I've seen that three or four different times already, which it's interesting. Up, in, I mean, I guess it's maybe not that surprising. The first time I remember seeing one was at El- Lake Elfendal. 10, oh, gosh, 12, 12 ago. years ago, I guess. <laughs> it's been a little while. And then after that, just every once in a while, I would see them. I, I think I saw one at the park. And then the last couple of years, this year, I saw saw one at the park. I saw one at Stargavin. I saw one. Um, I've seen at least three this year. At um, Halibut Point Rec. Halibut Point Rec. That's right. There was another one there. And so, I don't know. It could be that those are just ones that are easy to overlook. They're dark. They're in shadowy places, and so you could just miss them. And maybe I've noticed that with some other things where I never used to see them, and now I see them fairly consistently. And I don't think it's because they weren't there before, but the search image just Mm -hmm. wasn't sort of dialed in. And so it was easy. Leaf miners is an example. I'm sure there's been leaf miners all over. And I have comments in my weblog, my photo journal from years ago, where I'm like, I literally took pictures of 
a plant and the leaf mines were really obvious in it mm-hmm. and I didn't notice it until I was looking at the pictures later. And right. so now I've trained myself to pay attention a little more to that and actually be looking for those. Mm-hmm. And then they sort of, in some ways, it's now it's just become automatic and they jump out to me uh, in ways that they didn't. So I imagine it's similar with mushrooms and perhaps with this dusky bolete. That right. <laughs> You're, was, you start training your eyes to yes. see that and then you, you catch on. I think you also told me you saw hericium too. So I did. Now that we're yeah. like listing fungi off, I guess there's there's some fungi out there, but it's not like when you, you know, sometimes you go out in the woods and it's like, whoa, they're all over the place, you know, of all different kinds. And that's kind of what I like to teach with. I know most people are really just interested in the edible ones. Um, maybe a few people are interested in mushrooms that are used for dyes. Um, but I kind of like to be able to show people a variety of things while we're out there. And maybe my, my goal is not achievable all the time. <laughs> and I should be happy if I get to teach people about a few edible fungi and and they're probably happy to (laughs) yeah it is interesting i walked around uh, totem park maybe a month ago now and i remember thinking oh there's quite a few fungi out already and it seemed like it was a little bit on the early side for me to usually see very many but i have noticed in the last week or so that i've been out it's been variable like a couple places i went i felt like i was seeing quite a few fungi and a couple other places I went, there was hardly any. Mm-hmm. And so I guess this can just be spotty from year to year. And I don't know what the vagaries of, of micro habitat, micro uh, climate kind of things might be going on, or if it's just slightly differences, in, slight differences in timing, or what might be happening with all of those. But it is interesting to me, and and makes me a little curious. Like, what is going on? Why are mm-hmm. some of these places seen? So many, and is that consistent from year to year? I don't think so, because I've been places where I've seen quite a few in the past, but didn't happen to see many now. So, lots of lots of questions, mm-hmm. not so many answers. September. I'm counting on September to be more abundant for some reason for fungi. Well, we did have a, a dry July, and August has been above average, as I mentioned earlier, but that's largely on the back of that four inches of rain, right. four and a half inches of rain. Uh, in the one day, and I think it was wet the day before also. So, uh, But it's been dry since. So we've had a lot of dry days, even if the totals are mm-hmm. kind of working out to yeah. be pretty close to normal. And I don't know, we haven't had, it hasn't struck me as being an especially hot summer. Uh, it has been sunny. July was pretty sunny and consistently warm rather than being yeah. hot. And I don't know how much that, like, I know the many of the fungi, not all of them, but many of them are connected in with the plants and so are responding in some way to how the plants are doing. And I don't know if that's like, uh, oh, it was a good year for the plants. The mu- the mushrooms are now responding immediately or if there's a, a year delay. I think they also just respond to temperature. Warmer temperature in a lot of cases actually causes things to fruit. Oh, okay. More, so so uh, they're just doing their thing underneath and then it's the tri- environmental right. triggers sure that are causing nutrition them Nutrition also would play a part but I have a feeling that warm temperatures also and then that transition um, mm-hmm. you know to cooler which we haven't really had yet so we'll see. Well I was on Harbor Mountain yesterday and noticed the first fall color mm-hmm. the deer cabbage was turning yellow up there and I had been up I'd noticed specifically that it wasn't turning color when I was up a different mountain earlier like within the last week. And I kind of think what might have happened is that 
there were clear nights or at least clear nights up high where the marine layer was down low. Mm-hmm. And so it cooled off. It seems like a lot of times those fall colory kinds of things are triggered by cool temperatures in the evening. And deer cabbage is, is one of the early ones, kind of turns bright yellow on the mountainsides. And I was a little surprised, in fact, that I wasn't like looking at Bear Mountain. You can often see the yellows right. up there. And I didn't see any. I haven't looked since I noticed since yesterday mm-hmm. I haven't looked but it, it did make me wonder okay well maybe it got cooler up up high and uh, I don't know what the temperatures were up there I guess I could look at the Harbor Mountain weather station and see right that'll um, tell us yeah yeah and see what if it got I don't think it has to get below freezing maybe I don't know if it does or not I don't think so I imagine somebody studied fall color somewhere but. yes somebody yes quite a bit but mostly with trees yeah I haven't seen a lot of I mean there could be stuff out there with herbaceous plants um, but I'd be willing to bet that no one's actually studied that particular plant that seems likely <laughs> yes I think I mean part of it's you hear about fall color other places and in the mountains and some places you have those larches that turn bright yellow mm-hmm. and the you know, coniferous tree with fall colors, sort of a novelty, but mostly it's hear about deciduous, like, or but it's a conifer, right? Yes, it's so. a conifer, but it's deciduous. That's why it changes color because the, le- the right. leaves are falling off. But mostly, I mean, we're familiar with coniferous trees that are evergreen, evergreens. So the back east, you know, you have all those hardwood forests where, in a good year, they're just like screaming colors, and people like travel just to see those. Mm-hmm. I find that it helps to. Narrow one's view a little bit here if you want to see fall colors. The muskegs, uh, the blueberries nice. sometimes, and the, and some of the sedges turn yellow, and the deer cabbage turns yellow. But the eastern and upper Midwest deciduous forests are pretty swanky when they all turn Well, color. like I said, you know, sometimes <laughs> you, you have take to be you where can. you are. But yes, um, the, actually, the interior um, up around Fairbanks is absolutely gorgeous um, when the fall, when the leaves, both the deciduous trees, because there's a lot of birches, there's cottonwoods, and there's um, trembling aspen, and there's also the larch. So you have a lot of really nice fall colors there, too. So there are fall colors in Alaska, and there certainly are fall colors here, even if they're not quite as crazy spectacular. (laughs) Narrow your focus a little bit. So are the interior ones, are they pretty much yellows, or they get some reds, There's yellows with some oranges. Every once in a while you see something a little bit red, but for the most part, but you get whole hillsides that are kind of this golden yellow color, and it's it's it was pretty spectacular last year. Well, I just read something. There's a you know a weather climate person that has a web blog that I follow, and they're just talking about the lack of fall color this year so far in Fairbanks because it's been cloudy, mm. and so the overnight temperatures haven't dropped as much as they would normally yeah. do this time of year and so the fall colors hadn't really Seems started a yet. little early yeah i don't know that it my it, impression based on what i was reading is that usually fall color starts by now and it hadn't really started yet so i'll have to go back and look at my photo dates yeah um yeah and i mean there's a variability from year to year yes. but this is definitely the the season where we're losing sun rapidly mm-hmm. the i think we're losing like something like four minutes a day here it's probably closer to 10 minutes a day or something right crazy as you go further north, north yeah and the peak the steepest time of decline is right at the equinox so we're really coming into that time and uh, this transition and it's it's an interesting sort of tension that I feel of like, well, it's getting darker and I have lots of things to take care of, but I don't know how many days I'm going to have sunshine and warm temperatures. And 
opportunity to get up in the mountains. So, so I've been out in the garden because of that. Yes. Like, oh, <laughs> better better get the garden work done. And I was thinking about when I was walking over here. I was thinking about um, why I garden. I mean, there's lots of different reasons, but one of the one of the benefits I I like of gardening is I actually feel like I learn a lot more about plants by gardening. Um, I learn about plants, obviously, through reading books or through my education and all that. Um, I learn about what plants look like through drawing, which I actually find a pretty useful way to get to know plants. But gardening actually teaches you a lot about plants. And so it's 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 kind of interesting that way. And I have some native plants in my garden, too, so they're kind of mixed in. And I have some sanguine sorba, um, some burnet, and um, <laughs> notice for the first time really what an intense rhizome that that critter has and it does kind of spread um through that that underground um stem which i didn't really pay attention to i don't always pay attention to stuff like that when i'm you know looking at plants out in their native habitat obviously i'm not digging them up (laughs) and you know it certainly includes all that information in the description of plants and books and all that but it's actually kind of interesting to to grow them and to as you dig up your garden bed and move everything around um you get to see what the those underground structures are alike too so it kind of fits in with a lot of our native plants here that reproduce vegetatively um fairly often as well are you growing the burnet on purpose or yes. did it come in voluntarily nope i i i don't know how i acquired some good question um but i wanted to see i thought oh this might make a nice addition um to the garden because the inflorescence has that kind of cool sort of spiky look to it um so i thought oh that'd be kind of cool to have in there are you going is it the white flowered one the sitka burnet i have the red flowered one oh you have the the uh, formed from a hybrid one or the or the one that doesn't have the long i have the one that has the long stamens okay and so (laughs) so then yeah uh Menzies Burnett or yes, something like yes. Sanguisorba menziesii, which I understand is uh, came originally from a hybrid of the Sitka Burnett and the Common Burnett, which is mostly in the muskegs and the right. Sitka Burnett. You often, if you go to Star Gavin here in Sitka, you'll see it growing along the road there. It seems to like a lot of places that mm-hmm. are sort of margin places and and doesn't mind disturbed places. So I guess a garden's a good place. Yeah. For, it doesn't look quite as pretty in my garden as it does up at Harbor Mountain for some reason, <laughs> but, um, but it's okay. Um, yeah, it was kind of interesting. You know, some native plants actually are a real nice addition to the garden, like the irises. Um, I have one of the asters um, in my garden, and that's kind of nice. The little um, no longer tree and talus, the lismachia, the star flowers are pretty, the yellow violets, things like that. So have you introduced all of these, or did some of them no, volunteer I, for I, you. Um, I was it was fairly deliberate. I had the yeah. the um, Cicerinchium too, the little blue eyed grass. Um, I've had uh, chocolate lilies actually still do um, shooting stars also. I mean, I don't recommend people go digging up plants all over the place, but I think most of mine came from places where it looked like the plant was kind of being upended for a variety washed out of, of a stream bank. Or yeah, something that was was like, oh, here's an opportunity. <laughs> you can also collect seeds, I imagine. Yes. Actually, um, if you if you are so brave as to put yellow monkey flower in the the violets in your garden, seeds are a good way to get them started. You, you will have to keep control of them a little bit. Yeah. So that is, I guess, if you're targeting 
plants. And generally speaking, I mean, you could eat the violets, but most of those that you've mentioned are not ones that people are regularly eating. I guess rice roots sometimes people eat. So you're planting them for the flowers and the plants. I'm planting for the flowers. (laughs) And that is, I mean, flowers are nice, but... Pollinators really like flowers. <laughs> so it's not, it's not, are, are you thinking of that both for your own visual satisfaction, but also for the, the benefit of pollinators and, and, the, and the broader ecology that's helping to support your garden growth? I would go for the first two probably the most. Um, is I, for myself, I like, I'm interested in plants, right? So uh, the the more different forms and shapes I think is interesting. I do think it's a good way to learn about how plants grow um, and how they reproduce, uh, wild plants and, you know, plants that are wild someplace else. Um, probably less so in terms of the broader ecology because they're just certainly not necessarily growing in places. Where they're, prob- they're similar. They wouldn't grow there at all. Um, so they're, most of these are growing out in the, the sunny parts of my garden or they, yeah, they wouldn't thrive. Um, but yeah, I think it's just more just because I, aesthetics and I thought it would be interesting to mix them in with, um, with the, my cultivated plant or my more, more deliberately and broadly cultivated plants. Well, many of the species, I'm going to guess all the species that you mentioned strike me as kind of meadow plants. Yeah. Uh, and you know, a lot of our meadows here happen to be wet. Your garden maybe isn't as wet as many of our wet meadows are, <laughs> uh, nor necessarily would you want it to be. But I suppose there are, if you have plants that it's helpful to have pollination for, like apple trees or something like that, then it's nice to be supporting your pollinators. And it's just generally good to be supporting yeah. pollinators as they are doing a lot of good in the world. So the flower flowers, you also have cultivated flowers in addition mm-hmm. to, I think a lot of people, I guess there are people that are like, their gardening is flower gardening, and that's right. all they do. And there are people that their gardening is vegetable gardening, and that's all they do. But it seems like you do a little bit of I, both. I like doing both. I like having, I, I do find it very satisfying to go out in the garden and pick food, but I also find it super satisfying to look at, the window and look at pretty flowers or leaves that change color you know um so there's different kinds of shrubs so yep i i like i mean honest goodness i just like plants um so i they're growing in pots they're growing in vegetable beds they're growing in flower beds and it's interesting to see them it's and because i have all these flowers in different places i see more of the the insects around you know like the other night it was really interesting to go out i went out to look at the moon and I looked at my dahlias out there on the deck and there was some interesting moths in them that I hadn't noticed before you know it was just that it was almost dark it wasn't really dark yet um, but the moths were out there pollinating the brighter yellow dahlias which still show up pretty well in those dim lights and they're they're dahlias that have more than five petals so they're they're not singles but they're not those really stuffed dahlias that you can't really see the the center bits so they still have food that's attractive to pollinators. Um, so I think the moths were eating away. Who knows if they're really being effective pollinators or not. Um, but 
for your purposes, I guess. It, it, they were just being interesting. Yeah, the dahlias, are, you're not collecting seed for them, presumably. So I could. Actually, they came. I grew them from seed. Oh, okay. Um, so I certainly could. I, I, there's no reason why I shouldn't, because who knows what what's happening out there. <laughs> well, that's what I, I wondered about. I saw somebody posted on Facebook about their Christmas cactuses that they were growing, and they were actually, they must have hand-pollinated them, because yep. I've had plenty of Christmas cactuses that never set seed, but they were getting seed. Mm-hmm. And at the moment, I have a handful of different sort of, I don't know if they're actually different species or if they're all the same species and just different cultivars. Different cultivars, probably. Um, I don't don't really know botany and taxonomy of Christmas cactuses. But I was curious, it's like, cause they're, some of them have very different flowers and I'm like, well, what happens if these mix together? And then do you get something that's like intermediate or just completely different or more like one than the other? Depends. And yeah. I, I mean, suppose. Right. And that's how high, you know, people have been hybridizing plants for a long time just to see what you get. You know, you cull through a, a bunch of them um, and like keep the ones you like. So but you, it, you have to be patient. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Each generation takes a year at least. At and, least. You know, dahlias are a little faster. Yeah. There's a lot of people that hybridize dahlias. So you can do a, a round around here, a round of dahlias essentially every year. You could potentially. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Christmas cactuses, probably a little longer. I don't Seems know. Seems like it, it might take longer for those to get to flowering. Yeah. But in any case, it is an interesting hobby that I know some people get deep into oh yeah i don't know if there's anybody locally that does but uh it is kind of fun to think about well what kind of flowers will show up on these different things and so do you when you're when you have these flowering plants some of which are cultivated you know cultivars and and things that you got seeds for got starts from somebody and then some of these native plants are you just kind of having them mixed all together do you have like separate beds for everything or oh no they're all mixed together So yeah, the the flower bed is a mixture of of cultivars and native plants, mostly cultivars. There's just some mixed in there, um, and there's no, <laughs> around the vegetable beds. There's all sorts of strange stragglers of various types, purposeful and not. Is there advantages to having them mixed or separate? I think it's just aesthetics. It's yeah. you know just what appeals to to the the. The, the curator of the garden, let's say. Yeah. <laughs> Obviously out in the wild, in a meadow situation, they're all growing mixed together. And right. they might have specific zones in the meadow where they're most happy. But, but they seem to tolerate each other's presence pretty, pretty yeah, well. Yeah, it seems like it's, it all works just fine. But yeah, sometimes it gets a little messy. Um, that's not for everyone. It's not always for me. Everyone's well, it's like, okay, this is cross the line <laughs> in my messiness. <laughs> level i can't deal with it anymore so it's time to get in there and rip stuff apart yeah my dad was uh, very much uh, like no weeds in the garden (laughs) kind of kind of person and i think any sort of native plant would have any sort of plant that he didn't plant there intentionally would probably be considered a weed but if he planted you know chocolate lilies there on purpose he wouldn't consider them a weed i'm sure yeah, Maybe. probably not. If he had a, I think his flower beds were a little more heterogeneous, let's just say. But his mm-hmm. vegetable beds were very. Yes, very I like clean. to put flowers at the ends of my vegetable beds sometimes, um, just for fun. <laughs> just for fun. <laughs> and some of my vegetable beds end up becoming flower beds. This year, one of them's full of sunflowers. Oh yeah, I have a big sunflower. It hasn't bloomed, but it just came from the bird seed that was on my deck and I actually don't think I put any bird seed in the pot. I'm not sure how the sunflower seed got there, but 
it it did and it started growing and it's about i don't know four feet tall or something i'm mm-hmm. i'm sort of crossing fingers that it blooms before it. it gets too cold yeah mine but. are done my big my first ones are fading i'm hoping they actually set seed i think it would be interesting to you know see how successful they set seed i have another one that's still coming i have them under this giant structure i actually had to take the structure apart though or like move the row cover off of it because the ones got too big but yeah it was a nice summer for sunflowers in my garden which was glorious and i was very happy about that were those volunteers from bird feeding or you planted them no they were cultivars that um, okay i started from seed um and then it was very deliberate (laughs) <laughs> so you started them indoors and then transplanted and Yeah, they I actually might have started them in the greenhouse. It was late enough. And yeah. sunflowers grow quickly for me. Yeah. In my experience. And I didn't yeah, I didn't start anything too early this year because the spring was a little chilly. It was May May through June. It's easy to forget that cuz it was feels like ancient history in some ways, but May into the middle of June we had one day where the temperature spiked to 82, the earliest it's ever hit 80. And then, and then 20 minutes later, it was in the 60s. It was mm-hmm. a, a remarkable uh, transition in weather. I'd actually hiked up Indian River Valley that day, and it was plenty warm up there. And I was coming back, and I got back home, and my kids were like, it was so hot out. And I was like, well, it felt all right. And then I looked at the weather, and it mm-hmm. had been, been had, like had in the 70, like kind of low 70s. And then the wind shifted direction and was like sort of blowing mm-hmm. from the land to the water. and. And that's when the temperature spiked. Right. And then it's shifted back again, and you got this sea breeze, which is much, much cooler. And then after that, it was never warm again until huh. <laughs> until late June. And we had all of that, uh, you know, it's plenty plenty of moisture and cool uh, May-June time. And I, I remember needing some heat, and I had planned on going down to Utah and Nevada in July regardless. Um, but before I left, I was like, okay. I mean, we definitely had some nice weather before I left. But I was, um, I did enjoy doing my tree pilgrimage um, to, um, it's not quite the southwest. It's kind of down there. Um, to that area when it was, I think it was hotter than blazes might be the radio worthy way of saying. <laughs> so you were in, if I remember what you told me before, you were in Nevada and Utah primarily. Yes. So it was in Great Basin National Park, um, which is right on the border of Nevada and Utah. And then my daughter and I took a road trip to um, a few national parks in Utah. So Bryce Canyon, Capitol Reef, and Cedar Breaks um, were the, the parks we visited. And we also went to one, actually it was Forest Service area that was gorgeous. It was called the Red Canyon, which is right near um, Bryce. It was it was hot, but it was incredibly beautiful. Just absolutely gorgeous. So like hot hundreds or Well, the first the or? first day I was there, it got to 102 and I was like, oh dear, I have like, I, I must be crazy. And then it moderated and I kind of got used to it too. I mean, I can deal with the 90s. Okay. I just, you know, I changed my day around how you, you know, how you, how you work during the day. But yes, the, the first day was pretty was kind of intense. I saw dinosaur tracks the first day and these beautiful pictographs. But by the time we got the pictographs, I hardly cared because I was so hot. It was like, okay, back to the car, turn on the air conditioning. Um, but I did, <laughs> I did deal with the world a lot better after that. But it, it was basically a, a tree pilgrimage in in some ways. So uh, this was it. What was the lowest elevation of any of the places that you were visiting? 
probably 4,000 feet. So 4,000, and then you up went to up to 11, probably. Oh, so that's thinner air up there. I guess it was thinner, yes. I did learn that it's for a sea level person who's used to cooler temperatures, hiking at 90 degrees at 10,000 feet is. It's a little bit of a chore. You know, maybe my age has something to do with it. But, yeah, that's that's kind of what it took to see all the, the, the different things. So um, it's not like Arizona where, you know, you go down there and there's the conifers are very limited to where they are. I mean, I guess conifers are still limited to the higher elevations, but all of those places had some pretty gorgeous conifers. Um, so one of the trees I really wanted to go see was um, bristlecone pine which are famous because they live so long. The oldest one's like 5,000 years old, roughly 5,000 years old. And they're the... And, and I'm not saying this just because my daughter works at Great Basin, but the most spectacular visually ones were actually at Great Basin. Um, really old, gnarly trees that looked super cool. Um, but there also are these bristlecone pines in um, actually all the other parks in Bryce, in Cedar Breaks, and in Capitol Reef um, as well. We couldn't, they're in some places we couldn't get to in Capitol Reef, but we did see them at the other spots and also at that Red Canyon Visitor Center where they actually had a planted one. And what was interesting seeing the one that was planted, it darn near looked like a monkey puzzle tree the way it was growing. Um, you know, if you looked at it up close, it looked like a pine. Um, but yeah, it was that was pretty cool. Um, that was the, that was one of the the fun trees, and um, I guess the, another one. Um, and I I encourage people if you go to a place where ponderosa pines grow, um, stick your nose in the trunk or at the trunk, right at the bark, because they smell like butterscotch or vanilla. They smell so good. It's just incredible. They're beautiful trees anyway, but they also smell really good. So it's kind of this wonderful treat um, that, you know, the the last day I was there, I had to go stick my nose in another one. <laughs> just like, okay, absorb this butterscotch um, thing that's there. But it was, yeah, it was really interesting to see those different trees. And one thing I was thinking Thinking about when I was at national parks, I like national parks. I, I enjoy visiting them. I mean, I ram, rad, rambled on about them last spring when I was on the show, different parks. Um, but I think one of the things that was kind of cool is even when they're crowded, there's a lot of they're they're crowded with people that are actually going to see. In, in their mind, a wild place, and they're seeing nature. So it was actually kind of cool to me that there were that many people that were spending their time doing that. Um, so, yes, the crowds can be a little bit of a, a bother. There was only crowds at Bryce, though, um, and that wasn't actually um, unmanageable by, by any stretch of the imagination. So you visited five national parks on this trip? I think just four. Na four national parks? Four national parks and a, a kind of a forest service area. Remember, uh, so few state parks: Capitol Reef, uh, Cedar Breaks, Cedar Breaks, Great Basin, and Bryce. And Bryce. So, and this is all in the southern Utah. Yes. Eastern Nevada. Yes. And driving, you had to drive a little bit to get between them. Yes. <laughs> so they were, they weren't right next door. They're but. not right next door, but it's pretty manageable. Um, says the person who was sitting in the passenger seat. But my daughter does like to drive, so it wasn't too bad. But one thing that was actually pretty nice about going this year was that they had a ton of snow, and so everything was really green. 
Um, lots of, you know, it was much greener and much lusher um, than my daughter said was there last year. Um, so lots of stuff was blooming. Um, the trees looked healthy. It was, yeah, it was, it was, it was a great botany trip. So would that be something that would have shown up earlier in the year or is it just uh, in a year where there was less snow because it would have melted off sooner or would just there wouldn't have been enough water and so those things wouldn't have been present I think in that they, way at all? I think maybe the timing would have been a little bit different, um, but I'm this is a new area for me, so I don't know a ton about it. Um, I'm assuming the timing would be different or some things just wouldn't have stayed for green as green as long. And, you know, we were already starting into, when I was there, starting into their afternoon thunder shower um, period, so it was raining again. Um, so, you know, things were going to continue being green and lovely. And yeah, it was impressive how many flowers were blooming. There's a nice variety of flowers. There's, um, some flowers that actually grow here, you know, so that same red columbine that we have is down there. Um, the same species of columbine? It's the same species hmm. of columbine. There's others too, but that was the same species of columbine. There was a little epilobium, a little willow herb that was the same. I don't think that the... Uh, I was trying to decide if the monkshood was actually the same species or not. Uh, it looks very similar, similar kind of habitats and all that. Um, so there is, there's actually some overlap, interestingly enough. Not a lot. <laughs> but it does make me wonder if you were to transplant seeds, vice versa, how they would do. Like yeah. how much, how much in their genetics is adapted to those clouds. I mean, it's hard to imagine more different climate. I mean, I well, guess you they, could. But. Well, where they were growing was, you know, they're the columbines and the monkshood were growing by creeks in areas where their their feet were wet fairly frequently and also under the shade of trees. Mm -hmm. So they were doing their best to <laughs> be in places that were somewhat similar. Yeah. You know, there are plenty of flowers in full sun. There's a lot of penstemons there, which I think are called beard tongues. Lots of different species that are um, royal blue colors and bright reds and some really gorgeous things. And actually, which reminds me, one of the, the fun, there were butterflies all over, which was really fun. Um, but another pollinator there that's really active are hawk moths um, and I really did enjoy seeing all the hawk moths um, visiting all the different flowers that was super fun and just butterflies of all different sizes shapes and colors yeah it has been an interesting year well I guess maybe one of these days if you go visit there again you could bring some seeds back and put them in a pot see if, and see well none of them were had seeds oh yet. well fair enough so, maybe when I go back or, or if, if your daughter could collect some seeds well, for you I do want to go see the eclipse in October so, oh, so that might be a good time although the seeds may out. be already they may already be gone, gone hard by to then. say but um, yeah it would be just kind of curious maybe somebody's done that sort of an experiment with, with plants and, and seeds they've done it with yarrows oh yarrows, yarrows because yarrows grow all over yeah. the place um, so there definitely have been different studies with yarrows. Um, unfortunately, I cannot remember the results, um, but they've def that's one that, you know, it's, it's all in the same species for the most part. Um, and I think some of that is based on those studies. There, there are some ecotypes um, that don't transplant well, but for the most part. Yeah. 
Well, it's kind of, I mean, people live all over the place. So, yeah. And some of us transplant more readily and easily than others yes. to different uh, climates. <laughs> um, oh, the other tree that I got to go see that was a super big treat, sorry, this was a, a tree trip, believe it or not, um, was I got to go see the giant aspen clone. Well, I was wondering, is that in Utah? I remember. It's in Utah. Is yep. that like the sometimes Pando. claimed to be the largest? living organism it is the largest well living sometimes organism, you hear a fungus that is oh, also yes the, there's um, a, yes the armillariella that's the, in um, oregon i think in oregon but that this, is this, several this clone, many acres yeah so is this but so who knows i mean let's go with it's the largest vascular plant well, and it's certainly larger than any animals yes <laughs> so maybe a fungus is going to give it a run for its money but it was still regardless of Whatever. Yes. It's, yeah, I was, was just wondering. Giant so it is clone. that one. It's the big clonal. Pan- yes, Pando. Stand. It, I mean, it has a name. It has signs. You know, it, it's studied. It's protected. Um, it was actually super fun to go see it. So yes, this was this was a tree pilgrimage for sure. Is it in one of the parks or is it? Um, no, it's actually in. I think it's a state park in Utah, but it's not in one of the national parks. And I guess. You wouldn't necessarily know whether it's a large clonal thing or a bunch of separate trees unless you're actually studying it yes. and looking. So in principle, there could be other clonal stands of aspens. Oh, I'm sure there's are, other clonal stands that are of aspens. quite large as well. Yeah, yeah. I, but maybe just not quite as large. Yeah, or, um, or but, hasn't been But studied, aspens yeah. certainly, that's how they reproduce. Yeah, so would that have started, I mean, maybe, maybe they looked at this or, or maybe not, I don't know. Would that have started like from a single tree? Obviously... It it's is a clone, but, yep. But is it a, like a single tree colonized and then spread, or is it like there were multiple trees and then one eventually took over? Like it's, I don't know if they know the answer to that. Because you'd think of aspens as growing in these stands, but I don't know. You know, I, I I'm very much understand things in terms of what I'm used to seeing here mm-hmm. where trees are coming up and growing, and there's this whole regeneration thing that happens over time. There, it's a very different climate. You have fire in the system. You have other things in the system. Like, I suppose a a strong enough drought can just kill all of those things. Could potentially. And so then it's like when conditions are right, then something else can come in. But, yeah, it's just it's sort of novel for me to think of one aspen starting and then Just spreading out everywhere. Spreading. Obviously, it did that. I'm sure it took it a while. (laughs) But but whether it started literally as one tree. Right, or it was just more successful and just, you know, spread out. I I don't know if anyone knows the answer to that question. Do they have a sense of how old it is? Um, Probably someone does. I don't, unfortunately. I I did a little bit of digging. There was not a ton of signage. There was enough signage that you knew where you were. Um, and there's there is certainly some information online, and there's actually a friends of Pando group um, that you know does something there, helps monitor it, um, yeah. and actually in areas it's fenced um, because deer can do a lot of damage um, to these areas. It was eating the all the young ones apparently, and I think there might have been a disease in there as well. Um, so there is definitely a friends of Pando group. Um, that are helping monitor and protect this hmm. um, clone. I could imagine being clonal does have trade-offs, and one being if if you're susceptible to a disease, oh, yeah. your <laughs> your whole stand is not so good. Yeah, um, but yeah, and I I'm sorry, I should have studied up more of the details instead of 
playing in my garden before. <laughs> well, if folks are interested, where is that? Where is that found in somewhere in Utah? Yeah, it's in Utah. I would Google the location. Yeah. It's not near a town. Um, yeah. You know, we left Capitol Reef, and then you know, my daughter said, "When we go on this highway," and off we went, um, which was yeah, again, quite lovely. So, if folks are hankering for a visit to desert country. It's not especially more high, like high desert. High desert. Go yeah. for high desert. High desert country, especially as we're looking forward to the fall here. You said you're headed south again to visit because the there's, there's an annual eclipse that's happening in yes, October. October fourteenth. And probably we'll have many people visiting some of those places to yes. witness the eclipse. Yes, there's a few you know, I think um that part of Nevada um and you know, some of the parks in Utah are are good places for it. So if folks are interested in visiting there, do you recommend like flying into Salt Lake or I Las fl- Vegas I or fl- Phoenix? Well, your choice. But I flew into Salt Lake City. Um, Salt Lake City was pretty easy for me because they have like an express bus there that I could take that bus and get further south to a spot that was easier for my daughter to pick me up. Um, I'm sure people could also fly into Las Vegas. Um, it's a little bit further away. Actually, it's three. It's, a little, it's around three hours from Las Vegas to Great Basin, and I think it's more like five um, to Las Vegas. Um, Phoenix would be even further, but you'd get different parks on the different way. Different parks along the way. So, you know, it's whatever your druthers are. Um, you could fly to Reno, I think, for them. Yeah. <laughs> um, or wherever. Boise, probably. Um, but yeah, there's lots of different ways to do it. And there's so many parks down there. You know, it was like, we was down there, and it's like, oh, oh, we should have gone to Mesa Verde, too. We should have gone to Arches, you know. There's just no end of um, these parks. And I really do think these public lands are are wonderful. I think it's 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 something people should take advantage of. Um, they, you know, there's always there's people there, but that's okay. <laughs> are you are you a national park collector? Like you have the, um, you know, the list of parks you visited. I do. I, it's a very. I don't have it written down. Yeah. What I started doing lately was buying the little patches. Hmm. Um, so I don't know. Yes, I am kind of. I, and there's a postcard series that I absolutely love. That the artist that that does them i don't know the artist's name of course (laughs) um but so i like each park i go to i grab one of the little postcards of that style if i like it if i don't like it i'm not gonna buy it and you know my patch and i have a bulletin board at home nice so yes i i'm kind of a, a national park nerd um well there's there's a person who i i found on insert follow on Instagram and it's subpar parks where she does nice illustration, just a kind of a very oh, graphic it, design oh. illustration and then has a quote from a negative Yelp review. Oh, some of them were so funny. Yeah, yeah. You're like, Oh, this is so boring. There's nothing but trees here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It is funny to see that. And so she started by doing all the national parks and then I think has branched out and has done uh, numerous right. other sort of historical sites. I mean, uh, they state all, parks yeah. They're, it's fun seeing them because they all have different, Features. I mean, they're you know they're in similar areas, you know. So there's there's certainly some overlap, but there are always something a little bit different at each one of the parks. I mean, Capitol Reef was interesting because it, there was actually a Mormon settlement there in the past, and there's orchards, basically the campgrounds and the orchards. But there's incredible canyons there and beautiful, beautiful pictographs. Um, and there's some arches in Capitol Reef. 
if I remember the pictures that I saw online. There's yes, there's some really interesting arches there, and then Bryce, of course, has the amazing hoodoos that you walk down through, clutching onto the canyon wall if you don't like exposure. But <laughs> it was worth it, even for someone who you know it's like mm, I don't love heights, but I can manage them. Um, it was really gorgeous, um, and then Capitol Reef was had it's higher elevation it's a relatively small park and had incredibly view, views of canyons but what i really struck me was the it was uh grasslands is that the cedar breaks Ce- yes cedar breaks cedar breaks with the grasslands and patches of um conifers um and you know we don't have big grasslands here except for in you know you know small patches which are really sedgelands you know d- mostly sedgelands down in our estuary so seeing this habitat that was mostly grass was really interesting and the wildflowers were just bunkers they were all out um in that area so that's what really grabbed my attention different habitat elk around um we actually saw elk um actually up at great basin due to some very friendly um hunters that were scouting out you know the day before opening day you know pointed out to us where this one herd was with where they were watching so yeah it was it was a nice area nice well nice that you were able to visit there it helps to have a guide i suppose that's uh willing to drive drive around (laughs) and and has some experience at least one of the parks and if anybody goes down and visits in the next month or so i guess they could look for your daughter yep go to great basin from sitka and have a sitka person there oh yes so that'd be fun i think if i remember correctly she was there last year as well and ran into a sitka person or two more than one yeah that was visiting the park so it seems like those are popular um popular parks in that part of the country but um you know we're getting not too far from the end here and i did want to oh yes spend a couple minutes because in the past I, I know last spring the natural history seminar series started to slowly come back to life a little bit after after its hiatus for a variety of reasons primarily a pandemic and we did zoom though we did did a little bit of zoom and collaborated with some other folks that were doing some zoom Zoom talks and so there was a little bit to kind of keep us going but back to more in-person talks and are we having any need to look forward to this fall yes (laughs) so the first one that i have scheduled right now is for the end of september with lauren bell um, and she's going to talk about her research that she's been doing in Sitka Sound. There is the possibility um, that there will be one two weeks from now. Um, that just came up, so I'm going to see if I can shake that out before I really advertise it. So keep your eyes open. If you're on the seminar list, you'll get an email about it. We- I do try to get in the newspaper and on the radio as well. Um, So besides Lauren, which will be great, um, in October, um, we have a speaker scheduled for the 19th. Um, He's going to talk about... um, See, it's I, I'm all of a sudden I went, oh my gosh, they're all about seaweed. Um, <laughs> some seaweed mariculture and climate change, and how Japan's working on mitigating um, their mariculture strategies, you know, in response to climate change. Um, 
possibly Dolly Garza is coming up in November um, to give a talk um, on. Yep, it's all going to be seaweed. Sorry. It's the seaweed year. Um, so those are what I have planned so far. So at least three, two, two, at least two confirmed. And yes, then another couple that are in the works. Yes. Hopefully, so that we'll we'll get up there to four, and there could be another one. Actually, there probably will be another one associated with the Invasive Plants Conference. Um, that's a week after um, Whale Fest, so that will be in November as November. well. No doubt, the same time Dolly will be here, just because that's how things work out. I, I'm not the the planner of the Invasive Plants Conference, but. Um, Yes, but we'll take advantage of however however it works out. And even if it's not, that one isn't necessarily through the Natural History Seminar Series. If that piece doesn't work out, I will definitely advertise it through them because I'm working with those people trying to, you know, figure out logistics and all that sort of stuff. Nice. So, yeah, it has been a little while. These will be in person at UAS. The advertising will be as per usual, Sitka Sentinel, Facebook, and Raven Radio, Raven community, Radio, community and then our seminar list, and then the seminar email list. Which, if you'd like to sign up for that, you can go to sitkanature.org. And I believe on the front page there, there's a natural history seminar series. You can go in and add your email address to, and all it is is notifications about upcoming seminars. seminars. So yep. there's nothing I else. Don't that, send anything else. <laughs> nothing else that goes to that, and nobody else can send to it. In fact, except for I think you and me, because I'm the one that owns the list. Right. So it is not going to be spamming you with email if that's a concern. It shouldn't be. <laughs> no, <laughs> it should not be. And in fact, sometimes I get sometimes people try to send emails to it because they're trying to get in touch with you, and they right. just respond and. It, uh, I get a notification that somebody's trying to send to the email list, but uh, so that's that's fun. It'll be yeah, I guess a seaweed year. Lauren recently finished up her PhD and yep. is now at the science center at here doing uh, was I don't remember what the position is something about research the research director research director at the science so helping to coordinate the All studies the and work projects. Yes, and there's a lot of stuff going on there, and yeah, so the science center is. Um, SickaScience.org. They seem to be pretty good about posting on their oh, yeah. blog and and Facebook and um, Instagram. I'm seeing right. seeing a lot of just like updates on things that are going. And Whale Fest is happening the first weekend of November, and all the speakers, knock on wood, <laughs> are set up and confirmed. Things always change, you know. Um, but I believe that's all on the SickaWhaleFest.org website. It's as well, so people can start looking at that. So we kind of have your other hat on here as a as a. But there are also science. Yes, yes, I'm also science, on the board. Yes, Sika Sound Science uh, Center board member. But yes, happy to let folks know about the sorts of things that are happening here locally as we are. Well, I mean, it's the time of year. It's easier to to do those things. The sunshine, yes. when it is, is cold and it gets dark early. So Yes. I don't have that obsessive, I need to go outside. I need to go outside right now because it's sunny, which is there's sometimes if you get too many sunny days in the road, you end up exhausted because you're like, I can't. I can't not be out in it. I need to be doing something out there because it's beautiful. Set up a desk on your deck to... I have done that. To work. <laughs> yeah, no, I have the same issue. It's It's... I go for a hike, and lately I've been trying to get out a bit. Uh, July was kind of brutal that way. I was just like, I got exhausted in July for a while. It was just 
dry, even on the days it wasn't sunny, it was dry and warm. It's yep. like, oh, you should be getting out and doing something. But meanwhile, I was also collecting mosses and collecting right. things that needed follow-up and I needed to take pictures of and get labels on. Otherwise, I might as well not done it because I can't figure it out. That was the beauty out. of hiking daily in national parks. You're not allowed to collect in not there. Not allowed to so collect. So I them. took a lot of iNaturalist pictures to help me try and figure out what things were. But yes, I was definitely, I was hiking every day. <laughs> Well, and if I were, you know, elsewhere, I would not be collecting regardless, but uh, I just would take a few pictures. I'm, I approach things differently when I'm elsewhere mm-hmm. than I do here, certainly. And, you know, everybody gets to choose how they like to do things. It's, it's not everybody is quite as compulsive as I am about trying to document species here. And I, it has been, yeah, well, it's been a good year. I, mm-hmm. I there was an Alaska plant botany bioblitz. Uh, Native yes. Plant Society spo- sponsored a bio, uh, plant bioblitz for the first couple of weeks of July. And uh, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, I can be put my other hat on. I'm also on the board of on the Alaska Native Plant Society. And those, there are talks in the, throughout the year, and those are actually on, available on Zoom. Um, so you don't have to be in Anchorage um, to listen to those talks and attend those meetings. I don't have the list off the top of my head, um, but there um, there is a I was going to say there's there is a web page, but Facebook is where um, those are posted. So Alaska Native Plant Society has been operational for I mean it's been a thing for quite some time I remember they had a group field trip that's how I heard about it first mm-hmm. I think they had a group field trip here I was able to meet some of the folks and went out on a couple of outings with them primarily seemed to be Anchorage based but I guess one advantage to the, the the sort of shift that was required by the pandemic is some of those shifts made people realize oh it's not really that difficult to do right hybrid kind of meetings and so now it's actually possible to live somewhere else in alaska and be more participatory yes in the alaska native plant society which i imagine is a win-win at that point oh i think so it's it's i think it's and i think the people in anchorage are also happy with that yeah that change so there's a number of people in anchorage that also don't want to drive to wherever the the meeting is you know depending on the weather and all that sort of stuff um, it can be an, an onerous drive at times. So, yeah, I think there's there's plenty of people. There's not just a few Fairbanksian and Sitkins that are listening um, via Zoom. There's there's a number of people in in Anchorage. So there's a nice opportunity there for folks that are interested in plants. And, you know, I, I guess they do a lot of different things. I've tended a couple of plants. Some folks are talking about, you know, cultivating plants, native mm-hmm. plants. There's talks about... So I went to the Aleutians and spent some time on that right. too. There's talks about, you, you know, how to identify certain groups and lots of different things. There seems to be a very open, I don't know how open in practice, but but it seems like there's opportunities for people to suggest ideas for talks. Oh, I'd like to hear about this. And, and, and the people that give the short talks, you know, there's, there's usually a, a featured speaker and then there's short things on on specific you know genera or families and the the people who give those are not professional botanists so you don't have to be a professional in order to you know participate in an active sort of way in the in the meetings just have an interest and it's nice to have a community of people that are interested in things that you're interested in and it's not always easy to find that locally when you live in a small right. town <laughs> and i think membership is is pretty 
inexpensive. I can't remember exactly what the number is. But it's like $20, $25 at the most for a year. For a year. Um, and that entitles you to your your a newsletter that's delivered electronically. You can get one that's, you know, um, paper if you like. Um, but, yes, I would go and um, check out the Facebook page for the Alaska Native Plant Society. And I can see if I can find the the actual link to the website and share it with Matt so he can share it with you. All right. Well, I will post that on when I post this recording on my website. I will include a link to that. And, well, we are out of time. So thank you for coming in and visiting. It was fun to hear a little bit about your travels and uh, your garden and all the other <laughs> things, the fun- fungi and the Natural History Seminar Series. Looking well, forward for to having me. Yeah, looking forward to those. And yeah, you've been listening to the Sitka Nature Show. I've had Kitty Labounty here with me, a regular guest, especially this time of year. I appreciate you joining and listening this week. And as always, I'd love to hear what you're seeing out there. Please feel free to send me an email, sitkanature at gmail.com, or get on Facebook and like the Sitka Nature page there. Until next time, this has been Matt on the Sitka Nature Show, KCW Sitka.